Pulp MX Network Production. Welcome to the Pulp Hockey Show with Steve Mathis. Support the show by clicking the Amazon banner on PulpHockey.com before shopping. Follow the show on Twitter at Pulp Hockey. Subscribe on iTunes and find us on Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to the Pulp Hockey Podcast. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Two Wonder, uh, the best men's underwear out there. A lot of NHL players are running two under. Uh, R.A. Dickey runs two under uh, from the Toronto Blue Jays. Check them out. The number two, UNDR.com, uh, the best men's underwear out there. And Ferraro 20 saves you 20%. So use the code there. Uh, Ray will still help you, even though he's not doing our show anymore. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Thanks. Get it on Stitcher. Get it on iTunes. Uh, as a freelance journalist uh, in the sport of Supercross and Motocross and as a huge hockey fan over the years, I'm super pumped about my guest uh, t- today on the show because I've been reading him forever. And as a writer, I, I admire his work, and it's nice to read read it every week, a nice, uh, you know, neutral, non-biased non, uh, account of what goes on in the game nationally-wise and also, too, a little bit more uh, locally in Calgary. Elmer Ferguson, award winner. He's in the Hall of Fame, uh, based in Calgary. Eric Duhaschuk. What's up, Eric? How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun with all yeah. the topics we want to talk about today. I appreciate you giving some guy you don't even know some time of the day <laughs> to do a podcast. Uh, these podcast things, I imagine you get hit up quite a bit. And, uh, um, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I, you know, I've, I've, when I was in journalism school, I remember all the people that used to do interviews, knowing that you know what I was doing was either a classroom assignment or something that would appear in the school paper. Mm-hmm. And and I, you can't ever forget that, right? You can't ever forget that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And these podcasts are nice too because you know I write for a number of magazines, and and so I'll do a feature story on a on a a rider, a dirt bike rider, and I come in at uh, I need to meet eighteen hundred, and I come in and I have twenty. 800, 3,500 worth of words that are gold that I hate editing out and I hate cutting out. Well, podcasts, they're great. Yeah, they just go on forever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we used to do one in a weekly at the, at the Globe and Mail until Darren York, who was the editor in charge, left to join TSN, and we haven't had anyone that has been able to replace him yet. But, uh, yeah, we did them weekly, and, and I miss it. You know, James Myrtle and I used to, to kick it around back mm-hmm. and forth, and that was always good because I sort of gave the, you know, the old grizzled veteran perspective, <laughs> and, and Myrtle is, you know, hot on analytics and came through the blogging uh, sphere. So, you know, he's a knowledgeable guy, but we, we sometimes come at the same issues from, from different perspectives, and, mm-hmm. and that makes for, for good radio and good podcasts. Yeah, I should mention you're at the Globe and Mail now, uh, Canada's national newspaper for people in America who, who don't, uh, don't understand what that is. So it's uh, it's a nice position. You've been covering the game forever. Let's let's get into it real quick. Um, Bob Hartley from the Flames, uh, Jack Adams Award winner last year, uh, got let go a couple weeks ago. Uh, the Flames are going to go in a new direction. To me, though, from the outside watching the season, and I don't watch as many Flames games. I'm a Leaf fan, and uh, it, it, life's rough these days for us, Eric. But um, yeah. <laughs> you um, guys are going in the right no, direction. No, I know. I'm pumped. I'm stoked. No, I'm stoked. Things I couldn't yeah. believe things actually worked out for the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's incredible. Right. Um, but uh, uh, f- watching and reading, reading your columns, uh, reading different things, it seems like the Flames whole year, you know, of course, the year before when Hartley won, they, they, they pulled through, they had great goaltending, they pulled through games late, they had this incredible buzz. Uh, it seemed that this year, and it wasn't Bob Hartley's fault, but the goaltending was where it sort of starts with what went wrong. Do you agree? Yeah. 
hundred percent right. And, 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 you know, the general manager, Bradtree Living, uh, has been very public about this really since the season ended and uh, that, that it's up to him to fix the problems in goal. And you've been watching hockey long enough, and I've been covering it long enough to know that, that goaltending play affects everything in the team. Well, people can say, oh, it's not just the goaltender's fault. Well, sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is if the, if the position players don't have confidence in, in the goaltenders, it affects the way they play. They're cheating on defense instead of cheating on offense. You know, it's the difference between having Dominic Hasek in 1970 and 1997 in goal for the Buffalo Sabres, a not very good team that challenged for the playoffs was a threat every time they played because the players had so much confidence that Hasek was going to stop every puck. Now, of course, it's impossible to stop every puck, but if you have that confidence in uh, playing uh, in front of a goaltender, it just affects everything in your mind. Mm-hmm. And conversely, if the goaltender isn't, is giving up one bad goal a game, you're just waiting for that to happen. You could be having a great spurt in the game, mm-hmm. but deep in the back of your brain, you're always thinking, when's the next bad goal going to go in? And it really it did happen a lot this year, especially to Jonas Hiller, who, mm-hmm. who you know, as you pointed out, was a real good player for them in the first of the year of his contract and was probably a big reason that they, they made the playoffs. He came up with timely saves lots in his first year with the team. For whatever reason, his confidence wasn't there. I, I kind of blame the organization because they started the season with three goalies on the roster and there was a lot of uncertainty. And mm-hmm. if you're play, you play the position of goal, you know, to have that uncertainty, doubt starts to creep in your mind. And none of them were really very good. And eventually, Kerry Ramo in the middle third of the season was pretty good. And they had a very good record over that period of time when, uh, when he was stopping the puck. And then he got hurt and then, then Hiller came back in and then Ordeo was okay. But, but you're right. It, you know, to blame this season on the coach would be wrong. And, uh, yeah. uh, but what I, think, what I think happened was that I think that you know, Bob Hartley is the type of coach. Mark Crawford is another coach like that. Very demanding. You know, they they mm-hmm. very seldom take the foot off the gas pedal. And when you have a young team, I don't think that's always the worst thing. You know, that he was on Gaudreau. He was on Monaghan. He was on Brody. He, you know, he, was, you know, he wanted more, more, more all the time. The problem, of course, with coaches like that is that as opposed to a coach that has a you know, three to five to seven year shelf life, their shelf lives tend to be shorter. And that has been Hartley's history in the National Hockey League, and it was the case again here. Now, I thought... I thought, just because of you know, the season that they had before, yeah. that he had bought himself one more year. I mean, they gave him a two-year contract extension in the middle of the season. I thought they were going to give him one more year and then make a decision after that. So the fact that they fast-forward the process by 12 months caught me and a lot of people by surprise. Okay, yeah, so you agree with me. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. Like, um, yeah, things didn't go well, but, you know, the tr- like you said, the kind of goaltending is where it starts and stops and, and what, what, what can Hartley do, right? He can't control these guys and, you know, they were good last year, so interesting. Um, who's the favorite? I hear, I hear Travis Green. I did a podcast with him a little while ago. He's one of Ferraro's buddies, and uh, obviously his goal, everybody's goal, is to get the NHL. But uh, what do you hear? I think I, I think it will be somebody like that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, Brad Tree Living, the manager of the Flames, is is also running Team Canada at the World Championships. He interviewed Mike Yo when he was over there. I think he's casting a very wide net mm-hmm. right now, and I think that it will it will not be um, you know uh, like a Randy Carlisle type or a Ron Wilson type. You know, yeah. those names have come up because Tree Living's boss is Brian Burke, the director of hockey of course, operations, yeah. and both Carlisle and and Wilson have been in in Brian Burke's orbit for a long period of time. 
but I think they are looking for a fresh face. So, you know, you hear names like Jeff Ward, you hear names like Brad Shaw, the assistant in, uh, in St. Louis. I think that they want to cast a very wide net and see if they can go out. The temptation always in, in these situations is hire somebody from your immediate group, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that works because, you know, you have to have trust and confidence in, in, in the guy that is running your bench. But sometimes you want fresh ideas from outside an organization. I think that's where they're at right now. So, you know, I haven't spoken to the, the manager here in a couple of weeks. You know, he was on his way to St. Petersburg the last time I chatted mm-hmm. with him. He, it didn't sound as if he had put any arbitrary time frame on it. Um, I said, if you don't have a guy in place at the draft, are you okay with that? Yep, no problem. Okay, yeah. But I think, I think yep. the, the goal is to, is to talk to everybody to, you know, and to really make a, a concerted decision. They don't feel that they have to have someone in place in the next uh, four to six weeks. If it spills into end of June, beginning of July, they're okay with that. But a younger, fresh face, maybe no previous NHL coaching experience is what you think they're going to end or up with. someone that has had a previous turn as an NHL coach, it didn't work out, has had to take a, you know, sort of that whole snakes and ladders thing yeah. with the coaching thing. You take, you know, you fall down and then you rebuild your resume up. You know, someone like Jim Playfair, for example, coach for one year in Calgary has been a, an assistant with mm-hmm. Arizona for a, for a long period of time. Uh, you know, somebody like that, you know, yeah. would also fit the criteria. But yeah, I think, uh, I think the success that, uh, you know, that John Hines had with New Jersey until mm-hmm. they ran in injuries at the end, the success that Dave Haxtell had with Philadelphia yeah. is emboldening people to, to, you know, to try and, and not just, you know, constantly, you know, recycle the same group of 30, uh, but to, to look further afield for the, for the next guy that can come in and, and make an impact. So Iron Mike is not going to come back for a second <laughs> tour. <laughs> Correct. Um, hey, it's been weird. It's been unexpected, and I can't believe it. But it does seem like, Eric, that Brian Burke is indeed not the face of the team, not letting Brad Tree Living you know, make his own deals. Uh, how or is that sort of that's just my perception but is Burke no, is, that's accurate yeah. no that's accurate I think that when they hired him essentially what they did was they, they you know they, they talked to a number of people they talked to Brandon Shanahan about the position when he was still a director of player safety they just spoke to Colin Campbell about it um, and what they were looking for was someone and, and this model has been repeated by a number of organizations someone to oversee the entire hockey operations but not handle the day to day job so mm-hmm. they, they had gone through a, you know, an experience when Jay Feast was here. And he did a really good job in terms of drafting some of the players that they had. Mm-hmm. But there were a couple of, of front office gaffes that kind of embarrassed the organization a little bit. And uh, they just felt that, that they, they, they needed more people. You know, so they, they brought in Brian Burke. He is the overseer of, of, the, um, of the operation. And then Brad Tree Living is the general manager. So he's the guy that they call for trades. But they've got a lot of support staff here. They've got, um, you know, an analytics guy in, in, in Crystal. They, they've got a, a, a very broad. Uh, front mm-hmm. office and you know you're from Winnipeg and you know that the one thing that Canadian teams that have money can do is spend on coaching personnel on support staff because that's not governed by the salary cap yeah. so when they brought Burke in that was the goal and you know there are, there are reasons to you know in Brian's personal life I mean he spends five days out of 14 in Toronto because he has a young family there and he mm-hmm. has joint custody so so he isn't here all the time he's not in the office 24-7 so it, it's, it's, it's working quite well and, and I think they run most of the major things passed him, but I think that when they hired Tree Living, again, they did an yeah. exhaustive search. They were not looking
looking to recycle. It could have been. It would have been very easy for him to hire George McPhee. You know, George McPhee was had just lost his job in Washington. He had a connection with Burke. Right. Uh, he was looking for something, but they felt that they wanted to go a little bit further afield. And the guy, I think he's great myself. You know, I think he's done a really good job. He's a smart, young, intelligent, hardworking guy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and he has a vision. And so I think that he's going to become a very good NHL general manager. What I like about him is he doesn't mind owning stuff. Like if you know, if the goaltending you know fell apart, which it did this year, he owns that. You know, he's not shifting the blame to someone else. So I think he's going to do a good job. And, and you're right. You know, Burke has an advisory role and an overseeing role, but in terms of the day-to-day operation, it's yeah. Brad Tree Living, it's Brad Pascal, it's Craig Conroy. Now, in Toronto, when Burke was there, and again, as a Leaf fan, I followed a little closer, he had, a, he had some personal vendettas against the media. He called some guys out. You know Brian. He's, you've known him probably forever, right? You've, I've known him since 1985. Yeah, so when he, when he was, was an like agent. A, an agent just right. trying to break into the business. So I go sure. back with him a long way. So yeah. how has he been with the media? And, I mean, obviously, like, you're a pretty uh, knowledgeable, respected uh, hockey writer, so I imagine you and him get along great. You, you don't write things for sort of clickbait, you know what I mean? So, no, no uh, I don't. Yeah. I'm sure you're uh, you know pretty what? good. I, I mean, there's a relationship with the media has been good here. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, my, and the, myself and George Johnson, who was, uh, who was uh, you know, the, the senior columnist mm-hmm. of the Calgary Herald for many, many years until until the layoffs here uh, earlier this oh, that's year, right. yeah, is, is another that. guy yeah. that, you know, uh, you know he's, he's not, you know, just... He's not writing for a fact. You know, there are people in the in the business. Everybody has a different voice. Mm-hmm. You know, my voice has always been, okay, let's calm down and look at this rationally. You know, and George is a clever writer, but but there isn't anybody that you know at the the minute that something goes bad, you know, the solution is only fire the coach, fire the general manager, trade the star player. You know, which is yep. to me overly simplistic, and especially in a in a cap the world, way yeah. hockey has yeah. become so complicated. It's just become such a complicated business with the cap and everything else that you just can't do that and. So I think you have to look at it rationally. I mean, you know, I'm sure when you evaluate teams, too, you know, you, you put on your, you know, okay, if I'm the general manager, what do I do? You know, mm-hmm. and there is no such thing as waving a magic wand and making a solution appear. As much as, you know, chat boards would like you to believe that you can trade, you know, uh, player X, a guy with, on an overpriced contract on your team for a, a, young star, a young star on another team, that just doesn't happen in real yeah. life. So, um, so yes, it. Uh, so he's been good. Burke's been he's been really yeah, good. Yeah, and, and 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 he's keeping a very low profile. So he just doesn't do a whole lot of media. And so I think that also helps. He, Which is know, amazing, right? It's amazing. <laughs> he's been yeah, low profile. I, I think that when, they, when he came here, that was he he wanted to do less. I think he realized that one of the things that went wrong in Toronto was that he was probably too front yeah. and center. Yeah. There are too many of those you know those sound bites that you heard from him. Mm-hmm. He would appear on top ten you know end of sportscast type things, and he probably realized that that. You know, he didn't do himself, and he didn't do his organization any any good with those. So he's he's really been trying to keep a lower profile and and just uh, you know yeah. leaving most of and then you know and most general managers too. This is one of the big changes I've seen in the in the past thirty years. General managers used to be way more available than than they are right now. I think teams tried to shield them a little bit more mm-hmm. today, so they're, they're just not out in the public as uh, nearly as much as they were say in the in the nineteen eighties when. Right. You know, Glenn Sather was running Edmonton, and Cliff Fletcher was running in Calgary. And if you, if it was a slow day, you'd call up one of them, and then it wasn't a slow day anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, as someone who saw Theo Fleury uh, in all his glory, perhaps when he was the best player uh, on the Flames and maybe, you know, top five or six in the NHL. Now, Johnny Gaudreau, Johnny Hockey, he doesn't have the edge of Theo. He doesn't want to carve your eyeball out. Right. But he's similar, right? Like, do you, do you see it? Do you see that in those two? Or 
I do. Yeah, yeah. Theo doesn't. That, that's one of the interesting really? things. You know, Theo. When if you ask Theo about Johnny Gaudreau, he makes the point that you know when Theo played, you know there was a six foot five defenseman that was on his back all the time, and he had to carry him around the ice. And that is that is true. Mm-hmm. The game has changed so much. Like when when Theo played as a five foot six guy, uh, he had to carve out a physical room for himself mm-hmm. because because the game uh, allowed it didn't allow, but it but it yeah. um, there was way more hooking and holding. Uh, you know the area in front of the net. If a defenseman wanted to bear hug you, that was that was generally not called. And so you know when the NHL brought in the new rules and uh, you know just interpreting the, the rule book according mm-hmm. to the letter rather than the you know sort of the, the way it evolved, uh, it changed the game and it opened it up for you know smaller defensemen for one thing and and also quicker forwards. So Johnny Gaudreau with the way he plays, I think would have had trouble 30 years ago. Whereas I think Theo Fleury, you take him from 1989 or 19. And transplant in today's game, he's a star. And uh, so, but but just you know, the one thing that they have in common: unbelievable hockey sense. Yeah. Unbelievable hockey sense. Gaudreau just you know, people will say, well, the puck follows him around. No, it doesn't. You know, he has that yeah. Gretzky-like ability to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, you know, and that just comes from you know the repetition of you know from age three and four on, and really having the confidence to find the, that area in in the the, the open ice area. You know. The one thing that I don't like about the game right now is that you know the players are so big and, mm-hmm. and they close so fast on the puck uh, because of the you know the commitment to defense that every mm-hmm. team in the National Hockey League has that it, it, it's a very rare guy uh, you know like a Gaudreau or a Patrick Kane that that pushes defensemen back that intimidates defensemen that they're not coming at you all the time and so that's a unique skill and I think that they really prize it here and you never know you know because he he has been successful at every level prior to uh, mm-hmm. uh, coming to the National Hockey League, but there's an awful lot of guys that tear it up in college, that tear it up in yeah. Europe, that tear yeah. it up in minor pro, that tear it up in Europe, that come over here, and for whatever reason, at that that final step, they can't make it. And so when he came in, I mean, he scored a goal in his first, in his first professional game, mm-hmm. and he's just been lights out good for two years here in Calgary. Yeah, at, at this point, the guy's for real. He can play at this point. Yeah. Like all questions are answered in my mind. Anyways, um, I find myself flipping to if I see a Calgary game in overtime, Eric, I am going mm-hmm. to that game. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. You, yeah. you got to watch this guy. He's unbelievable with some open ice. Um, that's funny though. The Theo doesn't, Maybe it's just one of those old guys that walk up hill to school in the snow both yeah. ways. You oh, know? A little bit like that, yeah. but, but 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 he makes a fundamental point because because <clears throat> if what what would happen if if you took Gaudreau and and put him into the game in 1985 or 1991 or something sure. like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. would would he be able to find that open space? You don't know. I mean, you know, like yeah. it's it's all. He, I guess it's always a fool. He is smaller than Theo, right? I mean, he's smaller dude than Theo. Um, he, he like skinnier, he, like type deal, like feels. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Height wise, they're about the same. And, right. and I put Martin St. Louis in there too. Like Martin St. Louis began his career in Calgary. Yeah. And I'll never forget the training camp where a colleague of mine, Mark Miller, stood Flurry and Martin St. Louis back to back to see which one was <laughs> was tall, and they were exactly the same height. And they've always been listed at five nine or whatever. But they but they're five seven, and Gaudreau is five seven. You know, you yeah. can just tell. I mean, you know, he's the same height as my daughter. <laughs> you know, so, it's crazy. 
yeah. it's, uh, it, it's and, and he is a slight guy. So if you look at him, you know, compared to, you know, somebody like, uh, um, you know, San Louis was mm-hmm. just broad. You know, he was a big, strong yeah. guy, even though he was short. Yeah, big and legs. Yeah, was, big legs. You know, yeah. a, a pretty strong. And Gaudreau just looks like a kid. You know, people <laughs> have, have joked, you know, that when he was playing in the USHL, other teams would think that he was the stick boy. He really does look like that. And he has that youthful face, too. So he just, he really does look like a, like a kid that walked into, you know, you know, looking for an autograph rather than somebody that's going to go out there and, and, and hand out the autographs after the game because he plays so well. It's nuts. Uh, I've been following the Calgary Arena uh, situation a little bit. Uh, obviously, being from Winnipeg, you know, finally they built one and, and – you know, I remember when the Jets were there. I left to come down south in 96, so right when the Jets left. But the drama and politics of trying to get a new arena built were, were interesting to me, and they still are in this day, in 2016. Edmonton's getting a new one, obviously opening up next year. I saw the mayor and Gary Bettman exchange some words. Uh, you know, Bettman came to town with the old, you know, I'm going to help you. You know, if you get a new arena, the whole downtown will be revitalized, that old shtick. Um yeah. What's going to happen? What do you? Oh, they need a new arena at this, right? I mean, even though the Saddle Dome is got refurbished with the, after the flood, they they need a new arena. Well, in, in terms of raising revenues, absolutely. You know, the the ownership uh, group here, you know, sees all these different buildings that are going in and and, and the various ways that you can make money uh, in these these new buildings and and. You know, it, it would be uh, financially the, uh, a good decision for them. Um, it's a really difficult time right now because mm-hmm. the proposal that the Flames made involved a fair amount of public dollars, and the economy in Calgary and in Alberta, because it's so oil-based, is a, as bad as it's been ever, really. Oh, know? really, huh? When, yeah. When you, t- when you talk to yeah. the people here, I mean, I, I've been here since 78, mm-hmm. and this is a town, you know, similar to Houston, I guess, that, that has boom and bust cycles, and people right. are used to it, and they yeah. get, you, you know, and they find ways of getting through it but this is as bad as it's been and oh wow appear to yeah. be any end in sight so the, the the speech that you're referencing i was actually at that it was at the chamber of commerce i think he thought that he was speaking to a uh, um, a receptive audience, but because <laughs> things had turned so sour in the oil patch, an awful lot of those people were looking for work, or the companies that they led were laying people off, and so it really struck um, a false tone. It was it was a little tone deaf for him to come in with that stump speech because he's made that you're right he's yeah. made that speech in lots of other markets and and depending on 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 the timing you know people have been really receptive to it it mm-hmm. it was a lead balloon here in, in, <laughs> in calgary and it just showed uh, the, the, the people felt that it showed a real insensitivity to all of the things that were happening in the market so you know the, that project is back at the the drawing board you know city council uh, reassessed what the um what the the true costs would be the flames estimated it would be uh somewhere in that under a uh, mm-hmm. billion dollars, and and because there, it involves a, a a cleanup of a yeah um, of a, a site or it, something, you know, yeah. they've added another billion to the cost. So there just isn't the money, the public there isn't the appetite to to dip into the public funds to, to build it, and so they've kicked it back to the flames, and they're in the process of redrawing it. And it may well be that the one thing the flames wanted to do, they've they've been on the you know on the grounds of the of the Calgary Stampede since mm-hmm. they moved there first right. in the corral, then in the Saddle Dome. Uh, they felt that they wanted to move downtown because 
most of the arenas that are having success in the United States are downtown arenas. Mm-hmm. And if and this is a really good site if it wasn't for the creosote contamination. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that small thing. And, uh, and and so they may have to rethink plans. And there is still there is room on the Stampede grounds to to build oh, further, okay. to build yeah. a new building. Um, they don't they didn't love it as their first plan. Obviously, uh, they may have to revisit that now. So you sound a little more pessimistic than some of the stuff I've been reading. Like it's got, yeah. it's a long way to go. Basically, is what uh, I'm yeah, getting I from think, you. I think it's fair to say because yeah. even if they had gone forward with the, uh, the, the the plan that they had put forward, you know, the the environmental cleanup is estimated to take be somewhere between three and five years. And so it, it's it's a complicated problem, and, and you know the company that, that that did the damage no longer has a corporate presence in Alberta. Mm. So who pays for it? You yeah. know, can you sue yep. the parent company? They're based in Quebec right now. It's it's a tangled legal problem right now. And you know, and if they, it's for sure, if they want to go ahead with that site, we're looking at a long way down the road. Now you made a really good point in, the, in framing your question because they have renovated the Saddle Dome as a result of a flood they had here right. in Calgary in the summer of 2012. So it. it It is a functional building. I mean, if you come to watch a hockey game in Calgary, lots of people like it. Mm -hmm. Lots of people like it because you know they, you know, people will tell you that some of these older buildings have more charm, and uh, and I think that that's true. You know, and the sight lines in the you know the lower you know bowl are are fantastic if if you if you can get a ticket there. So it's not um, it's not a dump. You know, sometimes a building, you know, near when it yeah. nears the end of its of its shelf life, you know, as charming as the Chicago Stadium was, <laughs> as charming as the Boston Garden was, towards the end, you know, I mean, the bathrooms weren't working properly. There was yeah. just, there, yeah. there, there were uh, there was a lot wrong with it. That's not the case in the Saddle Dome. I mean, it's it's been it was freshened up because of the insurance settlement from the the flood, and so and they really had to rebuild it from the ground up. So it's essentially a four year old building. The only sad thing about it was that they had to build it exactly the way it was because. I, yeah. I understand that that's part of how an insurance settlement works. It would have been nice to just, if, if they had been able to take the cash from that and put it into a new building, um, that would have, you know, Help, made yeah. a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah I, uh, as a hockey fan, I'm not an Islander fan, but my wife and I were in New York City, um, and I'm like, hey, look, the Islanders are leaving Nassau Coliseum. I got to go there, four yeah. cups, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So we made the trek out on the subways, and and. Went and saw the uh, Habs and the Islanders at Nassau just so I could like write it off on my bucket list, right? And I got I got there and I'm like, oh yeah, these guys need new building. They yeah, need yeah. a new building. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And so yeah, oh, sure, yeah. it's yeah. one of those things where you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and probably, you know, if, if there hadn't been the flood and if they hadn't yeah. refurbished the, the building, you know, you, you could make that point more convincingly. But that, that is one of the things that, you you know, like you just talk to people leaving the building and, and they're fine with it. They're fine mm-hmm. with it. But oh, again, okay. Yeah, so that, people that, are okay that, with it. That's the fan. That's the fan experience. And, and, you know, other than, you know, like parking, which has been a problem since it was a brand spanking new building. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, you know, the, the ownership is looking for revenue streams that this building just can't produce. Um, yeah, so it should be interesting to keep an eye on that and what happens. Uh, Eric, how cool is it? And I've been to the Hall of Fame a few times, uh, two or three times. We, we race in Toronto every year at the Rogers Center, and I try to make it to the Hall of Fame. If I can. You're in there. How cool <laughs> is that? Like, that's awesome. That's got to be yeah. like a really, well, really neat thing. Happens. Absolutely. Well, you know, two things. I've had you know an association with the Hall of Fame for a, a while now because I was elected uh, in the in the writers category, which is actually the Elmer Ferguson Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I was uh, I was only forty four, I think, when when I went in, which was cool. My wow. father was yeah. still alive. That that really meant something to. 
uh, to my dad and um, you know my kids were you know still school age and uh, but they were old enough to, to appreciate that so yeah I, believe me it's uh, it, you know as, as far as I'm concerned there's no greater no, honor that you can have as a hockey writer than to be honored with the Elmer Ferguson and the Hall of Fame and then the next year I was asked to join the Hall of Fame selection committee which is also mm-hmm. uh, one of my it's my really my favorite day of the year because you know we meet every year in June and you get a chance to nominate players and builders for the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. and uh, and then and, you know, I sit beside Scotty Bowman, so that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> right. No, that's that's a, just a yeah tip of a cap for a great career. And, yeah, the Elmer Ferguson Award, is it just it's one a year, right? It's not. It's, one a year, yeah. yeah one I, a year. I chair the Elmer Ferguson Committee. So okay. uh, for the last 14 years, I've been running the election, and, and Jim Matheson at the Edmonton Journal acts as the scrutineer. So our process is simply that, you know, in the, the beginning of January, we put out a call to members of our association, professional hockey writers, for nominees. And we usually get, you know, 10 or 12 uh candidates every year and then we strike a blue ribbon committee usually about 24 of the most experienced writers we try to get a geographic balance 12 americans 12 canadians it's actually excuse more to to the the states actually than in canada right now in terms of our our committee and then yeah we and and the the first week of uh of june we we announced the winner so last year's winner was bob mckenzie we actually have a winner i can't tell you who it is yep but uh but we have a, a tremendous uh, inductee coming up for, for 2016 and uh, most years I get to introduce our, our candidate because I chair the committee and that's always a lot of fun for me too so uh, yeah. it's it, it, it's a good award that you know, the broadcasters have the Foster Hewitt Award same thing uh, it, you know it, it, it's it's nice it's nice for the Hall of Fame to, to, to do that it was Clarence Campbell the president of the, the National Hockey League uh, a long time ago that uh, that came up with the concept mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, yeah you know you got a plaque it's, in the Hall of Fame yeah, so every year when I'm down there, you know, voting for the mm-hmm. the main Hall of Fame, you know, I sort of sneak a peek at my plaque <laughs> just to make sure it's still there. It's still there. No, that's awesome. Uh, now, you're on the selection committee, like you said, and I know there's lots of uh, secrecy rules and things you sign that, um, you know, you, don't, you can't talk about the process. And, and Damian Cox, uh, I, I read his column every year about how outraged he is at this, and along <laughs> with a few other guys. Um, um, now, I would love to be in there because I, I, I would... I would champion Eric Lindros until you know until yeah until the cops were called. But anyways, right. um, yeah, w- without talking about it too much and without getting yourself in trouble, um, it, it's it's pretty fun to do, I guess. Like you said, your favorite day yeah. of the year. It's pretty contentious. Do things get heated in there? Sometimes. Well, yep. you know, I, I can explain, you know, how it works. I mean, there's 18 members of the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, mm-hmm. and, and every year, you know, six of them, you know, renew or, or don't get renewed, depending on, on what happens. And, and, and I, you know, this is my 13th year. There, there are term limits now. They introduced term limits a number of years ago, so the, the maximum number of years you can serve on the committee is 15. I'm approaching the end of mine. I'm, I'm third in seniority now. John Davidson is, is the most senior person. Scott Bowman is next, and then than I am in years time. You guys are going to kick Scotty. Time. You guys are going to kick Scotty Bowman out of the selection committee. Yeah, that's what it looks like. They, <laughs> uh, they would have to. Uh, they would have to be a special uh, board right. of directors. Uh, and it's possible that that could happen. Right. But no, you're right. I mean, yeah. Scotty should be on it. But I think that they they felt that term limits were appropriate. That uh, you know that that. Uh, you know, you, mm-hmm. you don't, you know, you don't want somebody to be on for thirty or forty years, and especially if they've lost touch with the game a little bit. But yeah. if you look at the makeup of the committee, like we've had three people added this year: Ron Francis, the general manager in Carolina; Yari Curry has been added, and Bob McKenzie uh, came on to replace Doc Emmerich, who was retired. I mean, you know, Doc yeah. has served fifteen years, uh, and a, a, a great committee member. So um, it, these are. Uh, that's a I good thing. Yeah. Th- yeah, these are people that have a lot of integrity, 
and uh, and and spent a lot of time debating it. And, and I, I know that you know sometimes the reaction is you know like oh they're just you know going through the motions. That's not true. I mean people prepare really hard. Uh, the cases that that people make for their candidates are always very strong. And the hardest thing is that at the end of the day, you know you often have you know you're convinced of the legitimacy of all of these candidates, and there are only a certain a maximum number that you can put in in, in every category. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I like the process. Um, I think you know you would be hard pressed if you went down the list of people that uh, that are part of that committee and say, okay, that person doesn't belong, or that person doesn't mm-hmm. belong, or I don't trust that person's perspective. It's, it's people who've been involved in hockey for a long time, have watched these people, have interacted with these people, mm-hmm. um, and and you're right. You know, there is some talk about transparency, and and the one that's the one thing that our committee does get criticized for. Yep. You know, uh, we we ourselves don't know what the result of the votes is. We, we vote. Oh really? We're either oh. Told, we, okay. we're either told that uh, that our that a candidate has been elected or not elected. So oh, wow. it's pretty close to the yeah. best. But uh, but I think it works. Yeah. I think it works. I mean, I, you know, it, it, you would be hard pressed. I I think you know to to look back on and especially the last few years at, at the people that are elected and say, okay, that person doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. And often what you do is, you know, Eric Lindros is obviously somebody whose name um, is a lightning rod. Mm-hmm. And the answer of, you know, often is that, you know, if, if you know, like I'll, I'll watch the TSN broadcast afterwards and someone will, and the, the host will ask the question, uh, who could have gone in this year that didn't? And someone will say, Eric Lindros. Mm-hmm. Well, my answer would be, if I was the host, okay, but then who do you take out? Right. And then that right. makes it harder, you know. So it will be interesting because, you know, this year, um, this year is kind of a, a it year looks, where the... It looks okay. The, yeah, it looks, for Eric, if you were Eric, it looks like all right. Sometimes we get candidates that, you know, that just scream out Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Nick Lidstrom was a first you know, time eligible for the ballot. I think, you know, pretty much, you know, I don't think you're giving up much in terms of the confidentiality agreements that we signed to say that, that Nick Lidstrom was probably going to get in, you know, <laughs> yeah. and Chris Prong or Fisher was gonna probably get in, going right. to get in. Yeah. So there are, there are some that are like Timo Solani is coming up in two years, Marty Berdur in three years. I think we can, you know, say without mm-hmm. breaching anything that these guys will probably get in. So this year there, there isn't, you know, there aren't any candidates that, that jump out at you like that, that are just, you know, like, you know, People will call them mm-hmm. no-brainers, and so it becomes a, a you know a second chance here for a lot of people, and, and it will be interesting to see. I think it's going to be one of our more interesting uh, meetings, just because uh, you know all of the the names that you hear mm-hmm. that people want considered for the Hall of Fame, and they're considered every year. But this year, you know, the opportunity for some of these uh, these candidates is as good as it's been in a long time. So yeah, I I, I kind of. You know, the transparency thing would be cool for me as a fan. I'd like to see it. But I also, uh, the term limit thing, I think, is a great thing. Like you said, it keeps people who are fresh, who are into the game, who know what's going on. Um, you know, in baseball, it got rid of some of their riders that had been out of, the, out of, out of, out of covering baseball for 20 years. Um, they got rid of, you know, some of those guys. And it sounds like uh, hockey's kind of, you know, wants the same kind of deal where, look, you, you know, you got to be on top of it. So, yeah, that sounds good. It sounds like a good, a good change was made. In that, yeah, in that and, I, yep. and I do believe that uh, you know, as I said, you go down the you know the list of people in there. These these are some of the smart. And Igor Larionov's on our committee. You know, I love listening to Igor talk. Right. Uh, Anders Hedberg is on our committee. I mean, you know, we, we have uh, we have a lot more European representation than we've had in the past. Yari Curry has joined this year. He's replaced uh, Peter Stasny, who was fabulous. I and mean, you know, it's it's a really good group and people who care about hockey and know about hockey. And uh, as I say, I, I think that if you look at the names, you know, these are people that. Uh, you know that that understand the game and have been involved in it a long period of time. Now, Lanny's the the chairman. 
Yeah, so Lanny has served on the selection committee for, mm-hmm. I believe, six years. But when he was elected to replace Pat Quinn, who passed away, uh, to uh, he, he, uh, he had to leave the executive. Uh, he had to leave the selection committee. But, but oh, he, okay. is, he is he's essentially in charge of the of the Hall of Fame right now. He replaced uh, Pat Quinn as the chairman of the Hockey Hall of Fame. So he's doing even more uh, work on a much broader basis. You know, he's part of the board of directors. Um, the, but he, the, but yeah. as, as as the chairman of the committee, he could no longer serve on the selection committee. So he oh, stepped see. down. Essentially, it was uh, I, I believe Ron Francis is stepping into Lanny's spot. I think um, I think Bob McKenzie is stepping into Doc Emmerich's spot, and Yari Curry is stepping into uh, uh, Peter Stasny's spot. So I really thought with Lanny, well, I guess he's not on the selection committee, like you said. I would think you and Lanny could we could get Makarov in the Hall of Fame. I really <laughs> I, I, that's another guy. See, that's the you thing know. that I can't uh, talk about. Right. <laughs> I, well, I want the Calgary connection, you know what I mean? The Calgary yeah. guys to get together here and yeah. uh, and get Makarov in the Hall of Fame. All right, we don't have too much time left for you. Uh, Globe and Mail's Eric Duhaschek on the Paul Pocky Podcast Show. So we'll kind of make these questions kind of quick. Your favorite Flames coach to cover and talk to? I'm guessing Badger Bob, but yeah. who, who was it? I mean, I like them all, yeah. honestly. You know, but Badger, I would, I would have to say Badger Bob because, like a lot of people, I quote Badger Bob back uh, <laughs> incessantly. You know, yeah. I think Mario Lemieux does it now, which is the most amazing thing. When, when, when Johnson left here to coach Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, and the Penguins came to town, he would drag Mario over to, to George and I, and make. And those were the days that Mario didn't like didn't like media. talking. Yeah, and 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 Badger made him. You know, I have a relationship with Mario Lemieux because of that. Because Badger <laughs> would drag him over there. These are two good guys. You can trust them. You, I, I watch. <laughs> Uh, give him a good interview, Mario, and then he'd go on into the hotel. It was hilarious. So he was—he was a character. He was yep. kicked. He was—he—he uh, he was just you know a, a real wonderful personality to deal with. But you know, Al McNeil was the coach before him. Mm-hmm. He was the very first coach of the Calgary Flames. I went to their training camp as in, in, you know as one of those newspaper series. Al treated me very very well. Um, I really enjoyed working with him. You know, Terry Crisp was was fun to work with. I mean, he was a very quotable guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they won a Stanley Cup when Terry Crisp was the coach and, and he had a terrific staff I mean they, they really worked to, together well. Um, Dave King you know, one of the smartest people sure. ever in hockey uh, was, was the coach here for, uh, for three years. I had an association with him um, through you know, the year three Olympics that The Olympic, yeah, and, based and, out of Calgary, and, right, yep Yep. Yeah, and I ended up ghosting his uh, his book. Uh, you know, when he wrote a, a first person account of being the first Canadian to coach in Russia, I was the ghost on that project. So I spoke to him every, you know, every week for a year when uh, when he was coaching Magnitogorsk and in, in mm-hmm. Ganey Malkins last year. So we've had. Yeah, I read that book. That was really good. That was a good job. Yeah, on we've it. had really good coaches in Calgary to cover people that I enjoy. One of the things I like about our business is just, you know, meeting interesting people. Right. And, and we, then Calgary has had a, a succession of very interesting uh, guys that, that have coached the team. How surprised are you that Daryl Sutter, well, when he got hired by the Kings, I'm like, what? Cause he kind of been run out of Calgary as a GM and as a coach. And now he's in his, in his Daryl way, He's now considered an awesome, great coach. He's won a couple cups. Uh, it's got to rank pretty high on the surprise scale, right? Well, uh, here's what I would say to that. Okay. I, I think that he was always a better coach than a, than a manager. Okay. Uh, and and if you look, you know, when the, the Flames last got to the Stanley Cup final, it was 2004. It was you know Daryl as the coach. I, I think he reaches certain players uh, on a on a real visceral level. And so old school players thrive under Daryl Sutter. And, <laughs> right. and I think that. You know the the you know a lot of those guys that are in Los Angeles right now have that like Drew Doughty is an old school guy you mm-hmm. know 
John Jonathan Quick is an old school guy. Kopitar, not so much, but but he you know he handles Daryl really well. Yeah. And, and Jeff Carter, same thing. You know, like Jeff Carter has been a guy that at different times in his career hasn't you know has had yeah, has very problems, average right. seasons, yeah. but he has he has just fit with what uh, Daryl does. I mean, Daryl is one of those guys that you know here's what I want. You know, here, here's what the expectations are, and uh, and away you go. And the other thing too is if you look at his staff, you know, he's got Davis Payne and uh, John Stevens there, two former NHL head coaches, and mm-hmm. so the model is a lot like it was when Scotty Bowman was coaching Detroit and Barry sure. Smith and Dave Lewis, Dave Lewis were the yeah. assistants. You know, if you will watch their practices, I'm in LA a lot. Uh, if you know, the, the, a lot of the the the, the, the minutia of coaching is mm-hmm. being done by the assistants. Daryl's a terrific bench coach. He's a terrific motivator. And yep. so I think any coaching staff in the National Hockey League has to have all those elements, but it doesn't matter who has that. Mm-hmm. You know, like if it's a nice guy coach, then, then one of the assistants is the task. He's the hard but yeah. Somewhere you need to have all of those, you know, to click all of the, you know, the fill all the boxes or whatever the current uh, cliche is. And, and so that's what they do in L.A., and that's why they've had so much success. Last question for you, Eric. Uh, the greatest flame ever that you watched is it is it Iggy is it that's just an easy answer is there yeah. some a magic man is there somebody that uh, again hard to answer that question the most talented for sure Kent Nelson no doubt about really? it you know, that, really really I've never seen anyone I was on the ice uh, the first flames training camp and the, the day that I you know McNeil said yeah you can stay on you're not getting in the way right. and I went to Al afterwards and uh, after the first a day or two, I guess it was two days, and uh, I'd, I'd been behind Kent Nilsson in a drill. And of course, he, you know, he just come up from Atlanta. I'd never, you know, were, yeah. were aware of this guy, but he ended up scoring 131 points in the <laughs> NHL that year. And uh, I'm behind him in a drill, and the explosive speed, the explosive shot, just, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky said, it, you know, in his mind, Kent Nilsson was the most talented player he ever played against. He was unbelievable. Now, you know, there were nights where he was invisible. He was hard <laughs> to motivate sometimes. Right. Uh, his body just wasn't there. But when he was on his game, boy, he was a treat to watch. And so loved uh, loved watching him. As you say, Jerome McGinley was was a, a, a great gentleman on and off the ice. Uh, really enjoyed uh, watching him. You know, in terms of, you know, like guys that lift you out of your seat, Theo Fleury was, was yeah. a guy like that. You know, uh, the, maybe the best pro I ever saw was Al McInnes, you know, a guy who came into his first training camp not really understanding about training, not really understanding about nutrition and diet, and, and turned himself into a, a, an NHL All-Star and a Hall of Famer. And that was just by sheer will because he came up as a power play specialist and he ended up becoming like a very good defender. So, you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of qualities to admire over a lot of the players that have passed through here. Some terrific here. guys too over the, over your time of covering the Flames, like just terrific All Star, world class players. You know, and when you look at the list, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, and then there are people that you know, like uh, Craig Conroy, that probably you know wouldn't resonate with with people necessarily. But he was a Ginless center for the most of the, the, yeah. the Ginless best years, and he was just uh, just a, a real good pro. And and I admire guys like that. You know, Joel Otto. You know, you ask me my favorite flame of all time. It, it might be Joel Otto or Colin Patterson, <laughs> who were on the checking oh, line really? on, yeah, on, yeah. on that eighty nine. Right. Just yeah. just really good human beings yeah. and, and uh, people you could relate to. I mean, that's one of the big changes that you know, like in, in the thirty six years or so that I've been covering the NHL, you know, the, the, the access is so different. You know, the platforms are so different and how you relate to the athletes mm-hmm. is so different. And, and in the first 10 or 12 years, we traveled with them. And so you just got to know them a little better as people. And it's a lot easier to write about people that you know, rather than ghosts. You know, you see the way things operate right now with scrums and whatnot. Right. It's, it's just, it's just harder to, you know, for the athletes to recognize who the writers are. And if you don't trust the person that's asking the questions, that's where you get those bland, boring, 
boring Bull Durham type you, uh, answers, unfortunately. I know I said last question, but this one really is. Do you think some flames in the dressing room, like younger guys, do they look at you? Elmer Ferguson Award winner, uh, Globe and Mail. Uh, look, I, I know all the things you've done and seen and talked about in hockey. Are these guys looking at you like you're just another writer? Uh, no, but you okay. know, public relations, public relations staff is good here. Because okay. Cause this yeah. is a very good, this is a really good organization to deal with because, you know, they'll say, you know, cause I don't cover the team on a daily basis right. anymore. So if I'm going down there, it's because I want to, you know, spend some one-on-one time with Johnny Gaudreau or Sean Monaghan or Mark Giordano. Okay. And, uh, and, and so, you know, they set that up ahead of time. And so they know, and the thing about it, I haven't been on uh, national television for about 10 years in Canada, but mm-hmm. there was a, a period of time where that really helped because I was on the satellite hot stove on CBC's Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that uh, you know these kids coming through the ranks, they recognize you because they saw you on television. So that, that helped, <laughs> that, too. I miss those hot stoves. I miss those. were great. Those were some great in, unscripted uh, uh, things, segments. So. Oh, they were terrible. They were yeah. really fun. They Me, were. Al Strachan, yeah. John Davis, oh, yeah. and Ron McLean. It was, yeah, it was yeah. a free-for-all every week, for sure. Strachan, Strachan, yelling and screaming and getting in fights. I know, it was and great. It. it was always J.D. and I against uh, Strachan. <laughs> it was. Ron, it really and, was. Well, uh, Eric, thank you for your time. I really appreciate the Paul Pocky podcast. Uh, maybe we'll do a part two down the road. I still have a bunch more questions I didn't get to. Uh, I love your stuff on Globe and Mail, and uh, congrats on everything. And um, thanks for taking the time for us today. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Okay.